You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. All right, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, and let's go to Acts chapter 17. As we continue in our series that we've titled Sent, a series where we are walking through the book of Acts together, and this morning we're going to be in chapter 17, and uh, we're going to start reading in verse 16. So Acts 17, I'll give you just a second to turn there. It's on page 926 in my Bible, if that helps at all. Uh, Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him into the Areopagus saying, Men, or, sorry, may we know uh, more of this new teaching that it is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would uh, spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind uh, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed. And from this He has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, well, we'd like to hear more about this. So Paul went uh, out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named uh, Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, pray together one more time. And so, Father in heaven, I do pray that right now that you would limit distractions, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ and all his beauty and all his glory and all of his truth. Um, I pray that you would help us to see him, savor him, worship him, surrender to him, and just remove every distraction, every tempter, every uh, uh, spiritual enemy that would want to prevent us from doing that. Uh, God, just bring us into a, a transforming encounter with Christ. We pray in his name. And for his glory, amen. All right, so 
In the summer of 2013, I was on my way from Kansas City to Branson, uh, going to go meet up with my family who had gone down a couple of days ahead of me, and I was going to go join up with them for a little vacation. And so I'm driving in our 2000 Honda Civic, um, going 80 miles an hour down Highway 71 South. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I see up in front of me, the car in front of me slams on his brakes and comes to a complete stop. So if that's ever happened to you, if you've been in that situation, you kind of know what that feels like. And so um, I slam on my brakes and I come to a screeching halt just inches before hitting the car in front of me. And so I'm like, you know, bending the steering wheel and my heart's racing and I'm like, oh, thank God I was able to stop, you know. About that time, I look up in my rearview mirror and I see the next car speeding toward me. And I'm thinking, uh, this is it. This is how, this is how it's all going to go down. And, uh, that guy slams on his brakes, only he's not able to stop. So he crashes into the back of me, which pushes me into the car in front of me. And then the car behind the car that hit me crashes into the back of him. The next car crashes into the back of him. The next car crashes into the back of him. And so by the time it's all said and done, this thing turns into a seven car pileup right there on 71 South, made the Kansas City nightly news and all that jazz. And so, Thankfully, um, no one was hurt too terribly bad. And so uh, now we're just kind of standing on the side of the road waiting for the police and for EMTs and highway assistants to arrive. And as I'm standing there waiting, um, this guy from a couple cars behind me, I've never seen him before in my life, walks up to me and says with no context, you know, I, I don't know why this kind of stuff keeps happening to me because I do everything in my life right. I try so hard to do everything right and be a good person. It's like the universe just wants to keep kicking me when I'm down. And I knew immediately in that moment that the Holy Spirit was prompting me to have a gospel conversation with this guy, only if I'm being honest, I didn't want to. Um, he kind of intimidated me. I was not in a good place. My vacation's ruined. And I just felt the Holy Spirit kind of gently, you know, thump me in the skull and just be like, hey, dude, I just saved your life. Now I want you to tell this guy about me. And so I was like, dang, you have a point. Uh, uh, okay, you win. And so... I, you know, reluctantly with a lot of fear and kind of anxious, I just started kind of asking this guy some questions because he just opened himself up. And so I said, it sounds like, man, like you've gone through a lot of uh, other stuff lately. And he says, yeah, he starts talking about how his wife left him and his kids want nothing to do with him. He was passed up for this promotion at work. And now this happens and he just can't catch a break. And I just kind of empathized with him and said, man, that is a lot. That's I'm sorry. That's really hard. And, you know, especially like you're trying your best to be a good person and Bad things keep happening. That's just really hard, man. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, I used to believe in karma, how if you're a good person, good things will happen to you. But now I'm not really sure what I believe. And I'm just trying to kind of find things to affirm as uh, things I'm hearing him say. And what can I affirm? And I said, yeah, man, you know, I think it's beautiful that you want to live a good life. You want to be a good person, a moral person, live a meaningful life. I also think it's you know good that you believe in some sort of higher power or something that's bigger than you, and you know kind of instinctively that you should give your life to that. And he agreed. And I said, but it, you know, it also kind of sounds to me like, and I'm treading kind of lightly here, but you know, it also kind of sounds to me like maybe um, the, your way of thinking and like your way of being is not not really working for you anymore. Like perhaps it's actually making you more exhausted and frustrated, and it makes you feel worse about yourself. And he agreed. And so I thanked him for sharing with me, and I said, would you mind uh, if I suggested a different point of view and just see if it doesn't answer some of your questions and some of your longings and some of your exhaustion? And 
He said, sure. And so then I was able to tell him all about the God who created this universe that he believes in. And this God who also knows what it is to suffer because Jesus died and rose again for our sins. And I said, the good thing about this God is that Jesus doesn't make you work for him to earn his approval, but he forgives you and he accepts you by grace when you put your trust in him. And I just kind of laid out the gospel. And I said, you know, would you, would you consider putting your faith and your hope in Jesus? He wasn't mean or he wasn't ugly, but he just said, uh, no, man, I'm, I disagree with that. You know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I actually believe that all you know, religions are the same and that uh, all paths lead to God or whatever that is for you. And uh, I, don't, I don't feel like I have any sort of need to uh, exclusively devote my life to Jesus. And so we just kind of agreed to disagree. About that time, uh, the police arrived and all that, so we've got to go you know, give our testimonies and all that stuff. And so we just shook hands. We parted ways. I've never seen him again. To, to my uh, knowledge, he did not put his faith in Jesus, but I've often uh, thought about him and what happened to him and maybe what he's doing now. And uh, the reason I tell you that story is simple. is because it, it really summarizes exactly the same situation Paul finds himself in in Acts 17. And it really summarizes the exact same situation we find ourselves in as disciples of Jesus living in a 21st century post-Christian society. And so let me just tell you what I mean by that, okay? Last week we saw in Acts chapter 16, Paul's preaching the gospel in Philippi. Now we're in Acts 17 and Paul is stranded in Athens, kind of like I was, stuck on the side of the road. He's just there. He's waiting on his friends to arrive. And while he's there, he ends up preaching the gospel. And just to set the stage for you, here's what you need to know about Athens. At this time, Athens, which is in Greece, was the cultural capital of the world. So for example... When you think about the intellectual world, Athens was the hometown of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, which to this day are the greatest philosophers of all time. When you think about entertainment and the arts and architecture, Athens gave us some of the greatest works in human history, still studied and beloved by art lovers and architects today. When you think about the the world of politics, Athens was the birthplace of democracy. It's the very first city anywhere in the world to practice a democratic form of government. And so all of this made Athens the cultural capital of the world. And because of that, Athens was a place committed to something we call pluralism. Uh, Pluralism basically says that uh, no one religion possesses absolute truth, which is an absolute truth claim, by the way, but just to put that out there. Uh, So it kind of falls on its own sword a little bit. But uh, pluralism basically says, hey, all paths lead to God or or some ultimate meaning. And so all paths are equally valid and true. And whatever your religion or your worldview that you want to practice, as long as you don't bother, bother anybody else with it, that's fine. This is the context where Paul finds himself in Acts chapter 17. And the reality is, this is the same context we find ourselves in today. Um, although we are 2,000 years removed from the city of Athens, in many ways we're still living in it. Cultural commentators argue that both believers and secular commentators, by the way, would say that pluralism is the creed of modern American culture. Uh, This creed is best expressed in the coexist bumper sticker. And, you know, if you have that bumper sticker, I'm not shaming you for that. I, I, you know, I uh, completely respect and defend your right to believe whatever you believe. It's in the words of Voltaire. I may disagree with you, but I will defend to the death your right to believe whatever it is that you believe. The point I'm trying to make is that pluralism is the essence of the American worldview, which basically says that you may believe in no God, 
You may believe in many gods. You may believe in many paths to some version of God. In the end, it doesn't really matter. We should coexist and agree that everybody's right. And the only person who's wrong is the person who tries to convert me to their belief. And so all of this brings us to a very important question. And it's a question that if you're a disciple of Jesus in the 21st century, you have to ask. And the question is, how do I engage in gospel conversations winsomely and effectively in a pluralistic world? In this kind of context, how do I help my friends, my neighbors, my family, my coworkers see that Jesus really is the way, the truth, the life, the good news that they are truly longing for? And this is the question Paul answers for us in Acts chapter 17. Because what Paul does is he gives us a pattern for how to have gospel conversations in a pluralistic world. And in Paul, we see three things. Okay, we see the why, what motivates Paul to have gospel conversations. We see the how, Paul's method for having gospel conversations. And then finally, we get to hear the who unpacked in Paul's message. So you have the why, you have the how, and you have the who. Or another way to say it would be the motivation, the method, and the message. And let me just say this before I jump into this. If you're in this room... And uh, you would not call yourself a Christian. Man, we are so glad you're here. We say with integrity, we will embody this. Um, this is a safe place for you to be here, uh, to bring your beliefs and your doubts and your questions. It's a safe place for you to be known, belong, and be loved, even if you don't believe in this Jesus. And so um, if that's you, my encouragement for you today is I just want to invite you to consider what would it look like for me in the marketplace of ideas? There's a lot of ideas floating around out there. What would it look like for me to give the gospel of Jesus a fair hearing? What would it look like for me to consider that the possibility that this Jesus really is the hope and the good news and the truth and the meaning and the beauty that I am searching for. And uh, if you want to talk more about that, uh, man, I would we'll, we'd love to make ourselves available. Your Mother's Day plans can wait. Uh, we would love to sit and talk with you and have a gracious, honest conversation around that. And in fact, that's what I want to do right now. So um, let's let's jump into this. Okay, you still with me? Acts seventeen. Let's look at. We're going to start with the why. It's always good to start with why. So. What motivated and drove Paul to open up his mouth in Athens and start talking with people about Jesus? Well, good, look at verse 15. We'll back up just a little for context. Luke says, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul had to leave the city he was in before because he was running for his life, and they just dropped him off and left him in Athens. The ship's like, this is as far as we can take you, bud, and they just leave him there. And so notice, while, he's, uh, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit is provoked within him. And I just feel like I have to say this, that you know, he's, he, this is not a scheduled stop for Paul, uh, but Paul realizes that wherever he's at, he's on mission because that's who he is. He's just waiting for his friends in Athens, but while he's there, he's, he's, he's on mission. Paul realizes that for him, uh, being on mission and sharing Jesus is not a side hobby. That's just who he is. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, that's true for you. And so because Paul understands this about himself, it causes him to see and feel differently about the world around him. And so Luke says in verse 16, what motivated Paul to share the gospel while he's waiting in Athens is that his spirit is provoked within him when he saw that the city is full of idols. Paul's driving motivation was that he was provoked by idolatry. And now just to put yourself in Athens, you have to understand that there were statues and images of gods and goddesses everywhere you look in the city. One ancient uh, writer says that it's easy, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. 
And so what happens is the Athenians would go to these gods and they would make offerings and sacrifices so that the gods might bless them with whatever it is that they long for. And there's literally a god for everything you can imagine. So just to give you a few examples... In Athens, you had uh, Artemis. She's the goddess of prosperity and money. If you want prosperity, you go to her and make offerings. You had Athena. Uh, she's the goddess of wisdom. If you need wisdom, you go to her temple and you give offerings. You have the goddess Nike, which is where we get the brand Nike. She's the goddess of victory and athletic achievement. So if your kid's got a big softball or baseball tournament coming up, you better make sure you go venerate her and make all the right sacrifices so that your team wins. Um, you have Aphrodite. I can't show you a picture of Aphrodite because I couldn't find one that was appropriate. Um, but uh, So Ryan just skipped over that one. Uh, but Aphrodite is the goddess of sex and beauty and fertility. So if you want to look uh, fit and feel beautiful and wanted, you go and you sacrifice to her. I even read about one goddess named Cloaxena. Yeah, there's Cloaxena. Poor Cloaxena. Uh, she was the goddess of the sewer system. So I'm not sure how you uh, make an offering to her uh, or worship her. I don't care to know uh, really how you do that. But my, my point is really simple. There's a God for everything. And, and, and this is everywhere. It's saturated the, the whole city of Athens. And so a God for everything, right? Paul is in the city of Athens and he sees that this whole thing is full of idols. All kinds, shapes and sizes for all sorts of people. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, of course Paul saw idolatry in Athens, right? They had literal statues everywhere, and that's primitive stuff. We don't do that in our culture anymore. Well, consider the words of John Stott about idolatry. Um, Stott says this. I'll put it on the screen. Idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols. An idol is a God substitute any person or thing that should occupy the place where only God should occupy is an idol. Fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, and other drugs. Parents, spouse, children, friends, work, recreation. Check this out. Even church, religion, and Christian service can be made into a substitute for the one true God. And so what Stott is saying is that Idols don't just consist in the form of ancient statues and temples. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. Anything you look to to be for you what only God can be for you. And, and what's fascinating is Stott says most of the things you know, that he mentions that can be idols are good things. But when you take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing, that's a bad thing. And it becomes an idol in your life. And so with this in mind, the question that the text invites us to ask, right, is when you look at your city... When you look at our region here in northeast Arkansas, what idols do you see? What are the God substitutes, the things that we make ultimate? And, and I want to be careful here because, um, you know, I'm, I'm representing our pastors, I'm representing our church, and we love our city. Uh, there's a ton to celebrate, but we have to be honest if we're going to be uh, effective and faithful missionaries too, right? So let's be honest. And we, we prayed through this and we talked about this as a staff on Monday and we talked about some of these we mentioned were the idol of individualism, right? The worship of self and my own autonomy and, and my own definition of truth. You have the worship of uh, money and consumerism, which is the worship of, of more stuff, more money, more experiences. You have the idol of success, which is the worship of achievement. You have the idol of politics. I mean, so many people have their whole identity and their emotional 
equilibrium tied up into being conservative or liberal uh, or Republican or Democrat. And if, if you want to just threaten that and watch what happens. You have the idol of family. And along with that, you get things like the idol of, of youth sports. And I want to be careful again because I'm stepping into this world with youths. I've got a bunch of youths at my house. And so I had a conversation with a lady several years ago who came to me for counseling, battling depression. And, and one of the triggers, things that was oppressing her was her debt. And so we started talking about, what do you spend your money on? And she said, the more it came out, she said, I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to my eyeballs because I'm paying for all these private hitting and coaching lessons for my daughter's softball. And I just can't do it anymore. And then all of the road trips, the gas and the food and the hotels, like she's maxed out like five credit cards. And she said, but then she said, but we can't help it. We just love it so much. And what I helped her see, what the spirit helped her see very gently is just like, it's, is it possible, honey, that you've taken something that's good and that your family enjoys and you've, act, you've actually turned it into an idol and now you're taking out your wallet and you're making offerings and, and sacrifices to it and it's killing your soul? She said, yes, that's exactly what's happening. We have the idol of, of health and beauty. You know, we now have 10 gyms in our city. 10 gyms in our city. Uh, three of those being new, brand new 24-7 uh, facilities. Um, I just want to go see who's working at 2.30 in the morning. I just want to, yeah, I want to do that. Um, and, uh, and two of those have opened in the last month. Why is that? In a city our size. Well, it's because there's a growing obsession with being fit and beautiful and, and desirable in our culture. You have the idol of religion, which may be the most deceptive of all in our culture because on the outside it looks great. But on the inside what's happening is we're worshiping our own moral performance and everything that we do to try to earn God's love and his approval. And so I could go on and on and on. The question really that you have to ask yourself is can you see this? Like right now, can you see the names and faces of people in your life who are chasing after things that are less than God? And can you see this in your own life? And when you do see it, does it break your heart? Because notice the connection between what Paul saw and what Paul felt. Verse 16 says, His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul has a visceral reaction to what he sees. This, this word provoked is fascinating. It's, it's the same word used in the Old Testament to talk about how it breaks God's heart and it makes him jealous when he sees us worshiping other idols instead of him. And, and this is not the proud kind of jealousy that says, I don't like you because you have something I want. This is the righteous jealousy that wants to protect and nurture what it loves. And if that love wants to walk away, it breaks your heart and it makes you angry. If anything threatens that love, it moves you with compassion and anger, righteous anger. And so this word tells us that Paul could not simply just sit back and coexist. I mean, he had a righteous jealousy for the glory of Jesus. He couldn't just sit back and go, everybody just do their thing. Because Paul sees the world with a different set of eyes. And when he looks at it, he sees all these humans made in the image of God, who bear God's image, who are deeply loved and wanted by God, but who are giving their hearts to things that will never satisfy them. And, and, and Paul sees this and his spirit is provoked by this. And so the question again is, do you see what Paul sees? Do you feel what Paul feels? You know, as you see your friends, your neighbors, the people in your life chasing after these other things, is your heart provoked like this? 
Or has this become normal to you? Right? Like, is this, this is just life in America. This is, these are the gods that we chase. And I know just to, just to put myself, uh, you know, under the, the x-ray, like what's going on in me a lot of times is I know I'm not provoked and I don't see this and I'm too numb to feel this because I'm so blinded and numbed by my own participation in it. And if I'm honest, I can get so caught up in the rat race of chasing after all these other things that I believe will give me the sense of security and the self-worth and the affirmation that only Jesus can give me. And so, man, my prayer for myself, my prayer for us is that God would open our eyes to see the idolatry in us and around us and that we would be provoked, right? And as a result, we wouldn't be able to stand another day of giving ourselves to something that's less than Jesus or watching our friends and our neighbors do the same. And so this is what motivates Paul. He, he just, this is why he proclaims the gospel in Athens. He can't not do it. Now I want to talk about how he does it. Okay, so what's his method? What's his strategy for having gospel conversations in a pluralistic world? I'm glad you asked. Um, look at verse 17. Luke says, uh, so Paul reasoned, I would underline that word, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed, I would underline that word, with him. All right, there's four quick, and I mean simple little things that I want you to notice about Paul's method. First thing we see is that Paul always just tries to meet people where they are. That's all he's trying to do. Um, Luke says that when Paul wants to reach the Jews, he goes to the synagogue. When he wants to reach the Gentiles, he goes to the marketplace. Why? Because that's where they are. And he just wants to meet people where they are. I mean, the synagogue, just to give you some context, is not just a place of worship. It's like a community center. There's a hotel there. Uh, there's an education center there. They have, there's a law court, political meetings. Like, this is where life happens if you're Jewish. And then the marketplace is similar for the non-Jewish community. In the marketplace, you got temples, law courts, state offices, libraries, shops, concert halls, gymnasiums, theaters, galleries. Who do you think's in the marketplace? Yeah, somebody said, everybody's in the marketplace, Right? And so this is where people spend their time and their energy and their money. It's where life happens. And so the point is really simple. Paul knows if he's going to bring the gospel to different types of people, he's going to have to get on their turf and meet them where they are. And I love this because Paul doesn't sit back and go, if you want to hear about Jesus, you've got to come to me. He doesn't spend, oh, listen, listen to this. He doesn't spend all his time and energy trying to make himself attractional. Paul follows the model of Jesus and he just enters into people's world. In fact, he does it so well that in verse 28 he quotes two of their own poets, which means he's put himself in their shoes, he's reading what they're reading, he's inside their head, he knows where they're coming from. And so here's what we need to learn from this. The mission of God is always incarnational. It always requires you to step into people's world and meet them where they are. The question you have to ask is this. God, who are you calling me to reach how can I meet them where they are? It's really that simple. Think about this in terms of your missional community and the people that you're trying to reach there. Think about this in terms of your own personal life and the people that God has placed in your life who are far from God. What, what are the, what are the, what, who are those people? What are their rhythms? What's the flow of life? Where do they go? What do they do? What do they love? And how can I adjust my life and my schedule so that I can get inside their world and be more present in their lives? This is the first thing you see about Paul's method. And then once Paul gets inside their world, look what he does. This is the second thing we see. Verse 16 says, 
he reasons with them. Um, that word reasoned in Greek is where we get our English word dialogue. In other words, Paul's method is really simple. He just has conversations with people. I love it. It says he conversed, right, with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And I love this because it's not rocket science. The way you have gospel conversations with people is to simply have conversations with people about the gospel. This is all Paul does. I, I, uh, I read a book several years ago by a church planter named Gary Rohrmeyer. And uh, it's a book that's titled Spiritual Conversations, Create, Creating and Sustaining Them Without Being a Jerk. And I uh, highly recommend you read it, especially those of you who are jerks, I guess, uh, which is me often. So uh, Spiritual Conversations, How to Have Them and Sustain Them Without Being a Jerk. And uh, Rohrmeyer says this kind of provocatively, but, but what he says is we need to stop doing evangelism and just start having conversations with people. What he means by that is we don't need to we don't we need, we need to talk with people not at people, especially if you want Jesus to feel like good news. Um, it's it's really easy to feel judged, right? Or some of you are like, I know because I've been hurt by this. I've been hurt by the church, right? And, and if that's you, we want to just apologize for that. We want to own that. Um, but it's it's easy to feel judged or disrespected or treated like a project, not a person. When somebody comes at you with a canned presentation or an argument that they're just trying to win. And so in Paul's strategy, he doesn't just walk in the room and hit them with a presentation. Instead, he has conversations. And so our big takeaway from this is sharing Jesus with people is really about relationship. It's really about conversations. It's really about getting to know people. It's really about asking questions and listening to their story and discovering what they believe and what they value and where they place their hope. Like this is Paul's method. He has conversations. Meets people where they are and he has conversations. Third thing we see about his method is that as he's having these conversations with people, Paul always tries to find the points of agreement. Look at verse 22. Paul says, um, it says he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. That's the council of philosophers. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive, seems to me that in every way you are very religious. So, Notice that Paul doesn't start with, men of Athens, I perceive that you're a bunch of pagans. And if you walked out here tonight, and you got hit by a bus, and you died, you would wake up in hell. Listen, I, we're not going to water this down for a second. That would be true. But Paul doesn't start there. He's going to get there, by the way. He's, he's going to get there, but he doesn't start there. He starts at a place of common ground and agreement. I can see that you're searching for something, right? And the Athenians are going, yeah, that's right. I can see that you have a longing for ultimate meaning in your life. It's kind of, I've messed this up more times than I've gotten it right, but the one time that I got it right by God's grace on the side of the road is kind of what I did with that guy, right? Like I can see that you want to be a good person. I can see that you believe in something bigger than you. And he's going, yeah, that's true of me. Paul finds a point of agreement. I can see that you're searching for an identity. I can see that you're trying to find purpose in your life. I can see that there's a hole you're trying to fill. And that's where he goes. Look at verse 23. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And what he's doing here is so brilliant. It's the fourth thing we see. Paul finds a point of agreement, and then Paul just helps people see that what they're trusting and putting their hope in, if they're honest, really isn't working. 
He says, hey, you know, I was just walking around your city. I'm just hanging out here waiting for my friends. And I found this altar to an unknown God. And so it seems to me like you have a deep sense and a fear that maybe you're missing something. It it, it seems to me like uh, maybe there's a a deep thing inside of you that knows that something is missing. And like you, you live with maybe an underlying anxiety and lack of fulfillment. And he's just picking up where they're at because the reason they have this unknown God, by the way, is because this is their just-in-case God. They fear that there's a God out there that they might not properly venerate and worship, and so they created this as kind of a catch-all because they don't want thunderbolts to come down and strike them for not living right. And Paul's like, man, that system is broken. Can you see that, that, that it seems to me that, that, that you're anxious and you're living in fear and there's, there's a lack of fulfillment in all your pursuits. He's saying, if you're honest, you know the idols that you're giving yourself to are just not working. So if you want some application this morning, one of the best questions we can ask of our culture and our city is this. How are the idols in people's lives failing them? How are the idols in people's lives failing them? It's like the conversation I had with the guy on the side of the road. It sounds like you're really trying to serve and please the universe, but, but that's not really working for you. Like you feel worse about yourself and you're, you're exhausted. And would you agree? And that's not just a question for other people, by the way. That's a question that you have to ask yourself this morning. Like what is it that I'm worshiping and chasing and how is that working for me? Because the reality is, what Paul's helping us see is that whether you consider yourself a religious person or not, everybody's a worshiper. Uh, everybody's living for something. Everybody's chasing something. Everybody's finding their identity and their purpose in something. Whatever that is, that's your God. And what Paul wants us to see, what he wants the Athenians to see is, whatever you worship will own you and wreck you if it's not Jesus. And, and if you're skeptical about that and you're thinking, man, that's, that's preacher talk, let me read to you the words of the late David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was an American author and an outspoken atheist who took his own life back in 2008. And here's a quote from his famous little book, This is Water. Okay, so Wallace, I'll put this on the screen for you. Wallace, again, very outspoken atheist, says this. Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. But the problem is that pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. And then he says, look, on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. And so both Wallace and Paul are saying that something we already know to be true is that the idols that we worship can never give us what they promise. Instead, they control us. And it's a dirty little trick because you work for them, they don't work for you. They leave you anxious, disappointed, empty, full of hurt, full of shame. 
And so this leaves us with a question. What's the solution then, right? Like if this is true, Paul, then what can rescue us from our idolatry and give us the love and the purpose and the joy and the freedom that we long for? And Paul says the answer is Jesus. This is ultimately where he always takes the conversation. Um, we've seen the why, we've seen the how. Now let's look at the who. Paul says this in verse 23. Hey, this God that you, you know you've missed, the God that you've not been able to find, he's the one true God I want to tell you about. This I proclaim to you. And then he starts with God as creator, and he just simply lays out the gospel story. Verse 24, this God made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, because he doesn't need anything. So he says, hey, doesn't it stand to reason that, that your heart longs for this God because this God made your heart? Like he made you, Paul says. He created everything. And unlike idols, he doesn't need you to serve him because he's perfectly sufficient within himself, which means he's not a means to another end. All these other idols that you worship and serve, you do it to get something else. And Paul says this God is so glorious, he is his own reward. And you were created for him to know him and enjoy him as your reward. And then he continues in verse 25, this God gives, uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, look, the breath you're breathing right now, this is the God who gave it to you. The molecular force holding your body together, this God holds that together. He gives life to everybody, whether you worship him with your life or not. And so Paul says, you can disbelieve in him all you want. You're still renting oxygen from him. He created you. He's breathing in you. He's, you're here because of him. And so then the question is, why has this God been so generous? I mean, why has he created us in the first place and given us life and breath and everything? Verse 27, Paul says, God gives you life that you should seek him and perhaps find your way, feel your way and find your way to him. And he is actually not far off from each one of us. Paul says, you want to know why you exist? God made you to seek him, to chase after him, to know him, to enjoy him, to be in relationship with him. And I love this because he says this transcendent creator, he's not like your other gods. who just like stands back in the sky and thumps you every time you make a mistake. This God is close to you, Paul says. He's actually not far from each one of you. So that means that there's nobody in this room that God is not far from this morning. The question is, are you far from him? As Paul goes on in verse 29, he says, he moves from creation to fall, and he says, we were created to, to know this God, to pursue and worship this God. The problem is we've created our own gods out of the materials that God has given us, and we've worshipped that stuff instead. And that's a problem because our sin and our, our idolatry separates us from God, makes us far from God, and Paul says actually places us under his judgment. Look at verse 31. Paul says, God's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. That's Jesus Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. So Paul says, look, every human is going to give an account for how they've lived their life. God is going to judge you in righteousness, which means that he's going to judge you impartially based on what you've done, what you've thought, the intentions of your heart, how you've treated God and other people in your pursuit of these other things. This is bad news that Paul brings upon us. The good news is he doesn't leave us there. Look what he says in verse 30. He says, look, the times of ignorance, like maybe you didn't know this before, but now you do. And, and God commands all people everywhere, including you and me this morning, to repent. 
Repent. Repent just means change your mind and turn away from what it is that you're worshiping and and building your life on. And when you turn away from that, it means you turn to Jesus because there is nowhere else to turn. This is shorthand for repent and put your faith in Jesus. And, And what Paul's getting at in verse 31 is this Jesus came and he lived the life that you and I failed to live. A perfect sinless worship of the Father. And and yet he took the judgment for our idolatry. Dying the death that we deserve to die. And then he rose from the dead to, to forgive our sins and to bring us back into loving relationship with God. This is the good news of Christianity. And what's amazing about this is any other God you worship will make you run your legs off and work like a dog. And it will never love you back. And the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, Jesus, He loves you so much that He works His way to you. And while you're chasing other things, He chases after you. And while we're making offering after offering and sacrifice after sacrifice to these gods that don't give a rip about us, He actually offers and sacrifices Himself for you. It is the good news of the gospel of Christianity. And and here's where Paul lands the plane right here. Notice... He lays out this beautiful gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, and and then he doesn't force anyone to make a decision, but he definitely brings us to the point of a decision. Because you cannot hear this gospel and not do something with it. What am I going to do with this? And, And to close, we see three responses. There's only three ways you can respond to the gospel of Jesus in verses 32 through 34. Some mocked and rejected Jesus. Some said, tell me more. I want to process more. It's kind of a middle ground. But some men joined Paul and believed. In other words, they surrendered and reoriented their hearts and lives around Jesus and his glory and his mission, and they embraced Jesus as their God and their Savior. And so to close, you know, we've looked at Paul's motivation. We've looked at his method. We've looked at his message in brief. And in that, we've not only learned a pattern for how to have gospel conversations, but we've been confronted with our own need for the gospel. Have we not? And, and so the question I want to end with is really simple. I just want to ask the question. This is, you, you've, got to, you've got to wrestle with this even if you've been following Jesus 35 years. This is not like, a, oh, that question's for them. This is a question for you and it's a question for me. How will you in this moment respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? This God who loves you, created you, pursues you, and gave his life for you. How will you respond to Jesus? Will you reject him? And walk away from him in in pursuit of other things? Will you lean in and say, tell me more about that? I want to dialogue more about that. Or will you repent and put your faith in Jesus? Will you you turn away from uh, these idols that you're serving and say, Jesus, forgive me for pursuing things um, that can never save me or satisfy me, but that only hurt me and cause me to hurt others? And, and, And I admit my need for your grace and that your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection is my only hope. And, and I believe and I accept you as my God, my Lord, and my Savior. My prayer for you, our prayer for you, is that you would make that your prayer this morning. And you can do that right now in this moment. How will you respond to Jesus? With that question just sitting right there uh, on top of your heart, hopefully kind of sinking in, here's what I want to invite us to do. It's very easy to, to, to get distracted in the next couple of moments, even already starting to put, put your Bibles and stuff away and get ready to stand. I want to invite you just to kind of stay in a posture of considering and wrestling with that question. Again, whether you're a Christian or not, been following Jesus for two days or 20 years, what, how will you respond to Jesus? 
And so I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. And as they do, we're going to, we're going to move into a time of communion. So each week, kind of our first application of the sermon is we take communion together. And what this Jesus uh, commanded us to uh, celebrate and partake of this meal as a way of remembering that He is our only hope. The, the bread represents His body that was broken for our sin and the blood represents, uh, the cup represents His blood that was shed for our sin to atone for our sin. And we have two stations here in the front, uh, two in the back, a gluten-free option back here to my left. And so um, if you're in this room and you would say Jesus is your hope, man, come and celebrate. Come to this table bringing nothing with you but your need for His grace and come and celebrate all that He has done for you. If you're in this room and you're like, man, I'm not really sure where I'm at. I'm not, I'm not, I have not given my heart to Jesus. I have questions about that. We would ask that you know, there's nothing magical about this table, nothing magical about these elements. We would ask that you would just kind of stay where you are and again, wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus and how will I respond to him today? And our prayer is that you put your faith in him. And if you, if you would like to talk more about that, again, I'll be available after the service. I know Jared and Chuck and Luke, our pastors, or you can talk to whoever it is that brought you. We would love to engage in that dialogue with you in a very safe uh, context for you. So let me pray, and then we'll come forward and celebrate. Yeah, so God, I do ask right now in this moment that you would uh, meet us right where we are. You're the ultimate incarnational missionary who meets us where we are and who comes engaging in a conversation with us that changes everything. Thank you for bringing the good news of the kingdom. Thank you for seeing us and loving us in spite of ourselves. God, we pray that you would uh, tear down any strongholds, any idolatry that's just rooted in our hearts. Lead us to a place of repentance and then freedom and joy in the worship of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.